Greetings, listeners, to another episode of Tales from the Ruther Library, the oldest continuing podcast from Wayne State University, which is in the heart of Detroit, Michigan. I am Dan Galadner, your host, and with me, my partner in crime is Troy Eller English, who is always making us sound good on the web. Hi, Troy. Hey, Dan. How you doing? I'm fantastic. You ready for the summer vacation? I'm very ready. What you doing? Uh, well, a day after this episode airs, I will be on a plane to Portland. Nice. Mm-hmm. Doing what? Visiting my friend before she moves back to Michigan. Oh, God, you got to get out there before she comes back to this <laughs> lovely state. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully there's no fires. Uh, hopefully. Yeah, hopefully not. It's not been the case in recent years. <laughs> right, exactly. So that sounds nice. I, I, we are going to Nova Scotia. Oh. <sighs> But I'm not going to the beach this year. Oh. I know, because it was last minute, and I have too many things to do, so I cannot see Daniel Irk and his brood. And his brood is now two. Two? They have wow. two now. Lovely little children. Mm-hmm. Lovely. So I will not be seeing Daniel Irk. You okay, Daniel? All right, I decided to do Daniel that. said yes. Okay. <laughs> All right, anyway, on with the show. On this episode, we are doing an urban history episode focusing on the environment, specifically environmental justice history. Now, the term environmental justice history, coined by Sylvia Hood Washington, puts in place historical studies that connect environmental justice and environmental history. Not to be confused with environmental racism, which was first used in 1982 in response to a chemical landfill in Warren County, North Carolina. This area of historical context with the environment and justice is a growing field for over the past 20 years, and we do have a few episodes dealing with the topic. And now adding to our list of shows on the environment, we will be talking with Josiah Rector, who wrote Toxic Debt, an environmental justice history of Detroit, justice, power, and politics. Rector is an urban historian specializing in 20th century U.S. urban environmental history, the history of environmental justice movement, and labor history. He earned his Ph.D. in history from Wayne State University, yay, and his dissertation received the Urban History Association's Michael Katz Award for Best Dissertation in Urban History in 2016. He is currently an assistant professor at the University of Houston. So his book... Deals focuses and, and analyzes Detroit from the late 1880s with water issues and industrial pollution, and he carries this all the way to the water crises in Detroit during the 20-teens and 2020s. He parallels various events of the past with the present, like, like typhoid fever to COVID. While doing this, he brings to the question how environmental destruction is a direct result of environmental health issues to the poor and working class citizens of Detroit, especially women and children. The stories of Detroit can be used for any large industrial city, you know, the the, the pollution, the fires, the lead and paint, the epidemics, all are concerns for all our major cities. Now, I remember when my child was born and we would visit my parents in Washington, D.C. She was still an infant, but we could not use the tap water with lead contaminants in it. Um, This is from the city government. This is from our nation's capital. We could not give our baby tap water. We had to use bottled water. So all these stories affect us every which way. So I'm sure you'll have similar stories as well that you can relate to the stories of Detroit from this book. But it's not all doom and gloom. Rector writes about community activists that take a stand and make room to advance the world toward a cleaner, safer place as well. So please pick up a copy of Toxic Debt, an environmental justice history of Detroit, justice, power, and politics. Even though this is about Detroit, it focuses on Detroit, it is in every city and every suburb across the world. These histories about environmental justice allow us to understand the past and present 
present so we can make a future to secure a right to a city for all. Hey, Josiah, thanks for joining Tales from the Ruther Library. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. We had to have you on because, you know, you lived in our reading room. You wrote this book based on all the stuff that we have here, really, you know, plus all the other stuff you did. So it's an honor to have you, actually. I'm so glad to actually see the publication come out. Um, so to get our listeners curious of what the purpose of your book, Toxic Debt, is and what your goals were, could you just kind of describe what you try to accomplish with this book? Uh, sure, Dan. So. Uh, Toxic Debt looks at the history of Detroit through the lens of environmental justice from the late 19th century to the present. Uh, So one way to think about this is that traditionally environmentalists often characterized problems like pollution, deforestation, endangered species in terms of human beings degrading the environment in a very general sense. But since the 1970s and 80s, activists have been using this phrase environmental justice to highlight inequalities among humans in who is most exposed to environmental hazards. Um, So over the past 30 years, we've had this outpouring of scholarship, uh, uh, especially pioneered by people like Robert Bullard, where I'm in Houston, but also important scholars at the University of Michigan, like Yersita Taylor and Bunyan Bryant, but a whole host of, of, of folks have produced this scholarship documenting race and class inequalities, but also, you know, gender uh, inequalities, uh, nationality-based inequalities, in who is most exposed to air pollution, toxic waste, lead contaminated water, and other kinds of hazards, right? Um, So in my book, I wanted to bring Detroit into that story. I went to grad school at Wayne State University between 2010 and 2017, and I was reading all this scholarship, and um, Detroit in a lot of ways fit obviously into that picture. Majority African-American city with poverty rates around three times the national average and high rates of exposure to air pollution, lead poisoning, and so forth. But I also saw some major limits um, in the existing literature, and I found that to tell the story of Detroit in relation to environmental justice, I would have to uh, push beyond some of those limits. Uh, So for one thing, uh, much of that literature is produced by sociologists and other social scientists, and they want to quantitatively measure inequalities in who's exposed to pollution, who lives near the polluting facilities, et cetera. Uh, or they use GIS mapping technologies to, to, to map it out. And that's all extremely important work, and I draw heavily on it in my book. But it often lacks a long-term historical perspective. Uh, now, to give credit where credit is due, folks like Dorsita Taylor, David Pello, and others have really connected uh, a historical perspective with sociology. So some of this work has been done, but there's a lot that hasn't been done. In the case of Detroit, there are a few uh, scholars like Liam Downey who have tried to quantitatively measure environmental inequality. But the longer term uh, perspective on the origins and development over time of environmental quality has not been told for Detroit, as well as many other cities. So I wanted to do that as a historian, right? Um, Also, this scholarship tends to focus on heavy industry, right? Refineries, incinerators, toxic waste dumps, and so forth. But it doesn't tend to look at things like austerity policies or the welfare state. And when I was writing my dissertation, this was a period, as you know, when there was a big struggle over water shutoffs in the city of Detroit, which continues to the present. So um, 
you had a, a major fight uh, led by organizations like Michigan Welfare Rights, the People's Water Board, against uh, uh, the shutting off of over a quarter million people's water in the city um, in the aftermath of 2012, 2013. Um, and to understand the causes of the water shutoffs, you really needed to go beyond just the fence lines of heavy industry and look at things like the city's debt, its relationship, certainly to the state of Michigan and emergency manager laws, but also um, the imposition of austerity policies and also privatization and the use of private contracting. So story, so austerity and privatization are not usually examined in environmental justice literature, but in the case of Detroit as well as in Flint, to understand the water crises, the shutoffs and the contamination, you really need to bring in finance and debt and look at how low-income families and people who are dependent on public assistance, for example, are impacted by these policies. Um, so in my book, I try to bring in, in addition to heavy industry, the financial and real estate sectors and, and the sort of corporate interests in those industries and their role in the crises that lead to the Detroit water crisis, the Flint water crisis, but also the public sector and its embrace of neoliberal policies like deregulation, privatization, and austerity. Um, the, the second thing I would say is that Studies of environmental justice as a social movement tend to look at activists living on the fence lines. So they look at people, for example, who are fighting major polluters demanding reductions in pollution, uh, pollution compensation for property and health damages, or demanding relocation. And those struggles have definitely been an important part of the story in Detroit. In the case of 48217, that's a very good example. Um, but at the same time, if you look at organizations like Michigan Welfare Rights, they usually get left out of the story of the environmental justice movement, right? But they're very much involved in an environmental justice struggle. When you have a quarter million people living without running water, you're at the center of the world's largest fresh water system, that's an environmental justice issue. But it's also an issue connected to welfare, right? And, and, and assistance for low-income families. So I wanted to tell a story of the environmental justice movement, which brought in these actors that are not usually associated with the movement. Um, and I did so by examining questions of debt, questions of austerity, um, questions of the welfare state, in addition to pollution. And, you know, I could say a lot more, and I, I want to give you a chance to ask your next, <laughs> next question. Um, I'll, I'll just say one more thing. I mean, I, I tell a longer story in the book about the development of the environmental justice movement. And I, I actually show, whereas most accounts of the environmental justice movement begin in Warren County, North Carolina in 1982, the United Auto Workers, um, sponsored a conference in 1976 at the Walter and May Ruther Education Center called Working for Environmental and Economic Justice and Jobs. And I argue in my book, this is one of the first places where the concept of environmental justice was popularized in Michigan. Um, and some of the attendees of that conference included Bunyan Bryant, who would go on to play an important role in the environmental justice movement. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm really bringing labor unions in, and this is where I draw a lot on uh, some of the records at the Ruther uh, Library in my book. But then I also show how organizations like Michigan Welfare Rights play an important role later on, and that's connected to changes in the city's economy. Sorry, that was probably an overly long answer. It's it's just a fine answer, though, and it's no problem. Um, because I like how you described that this is a part of bringing up the history and unknown parts of the history of the environmental movement. And our show, our podcast has been talking about that for the past year. So this is a great way to discuss it even further. So let's step back into that history. Uh, you paint a vivid description of Detroit pre-Great Depression. Um, what was life like? What was the city like under this growth and expansion of the city in relation to the water and the air quality? Right. Yeah. So 
Detroit expands rapidly over the course of the 19th century. So if you look at the city at the time of the Great Fire of 1805, you know, it's this small sort of fortified colonial trading post. By the end of the 19th century, Detroit has industrialized and it has a predominantly foreign-born population, a rising percentage of whom are from Southern and Eastern Europe. So you have a lot of Poles coming in, but of course, a lot of Germans and Irish and so forth. Um, and there are already major environmental inequalities um, in the city in that time. Um, so the areas that are the most underserved in terms of sanitary infrastructure are predominantly foreign-born immigrant neighborhoods, but also the city has a the city had African American residents going all the way back to the French colonial period, but they're a small percentage of the population, probably under five percent for most of the nineteenth century, and that of course will change with the Great Migration during World War One. Um, but the the small African American population is largely concentrated on the Near East side, and that's also where a lot of foreign-born immigrants are, and that's the area where you see the highest uh, rates of infectious disease and very poor sanitary conditions. But the big, the bigger picture is um, cities in general, industrial cities are very polluted in the 19th and early 20th century. And that's because they're powered by coal, uh, the main energy source of, of the sort of first and, and really second industrial revolution. And that means that the city is covered with soot, it's covered with ash, and the sky is often dark during the daytime. Um, and, you know, the, the coal is being emitted from factories, locomotives, uh, uh, steamships on the river spew out a lot of coal. Um, and there's a smoke ordinance that's passed in 1887, but it's very weakly enforced. And it makes essentially no difference in terms of air quality. There's a slightly stronger one passed in 1925. Still doesn't make much difference. The water supply is also highly contaminated. Um, and that's because it's not until 1913 that Detroit starts chlorinating its water supply. And that's roughly the same time a lot of other cities start chlorinating their water supplies. So basically water it, throughout the 19th century is contaminated with raw sewage. The city builds out its sewer system. There's like 50 plus open sewers discharging raw sewage into the Detroit River by the turn of the 20th century. And that's also where the city's getting its drinking water, right? So the water has all this fecal bacteria in it. And the consequence of water contamination is you have recurrent epidemics of waterborne disease again and again in the 19th century, right? Uh, cholera is the biggest killer, but you also have recurrent typhoid epidemics uh, well into the 1890s and beyond that kill hundreds and ultimately thousands of people, um, you know, bacterial infections and so forth. So, uh, and, you know, the, the people exposed to the most contaminated water tend to be these foreign-born immigrants, African-Americans, poor folks. And then, of course, you have dangerous conditions in factories because there, there's no effective system of inspection or regulation. So in the lead works, the workers often have lead poisoning and wood and metal shops. Workers often have lung diseases uh, uh, in the print shops. A lot of people have tuberculosis um, and so on. Right. So high rates of occupational disease, deadly conditions among industrial workers. Um, and, you know, the, I, I could say more about the politics of it and, and like what Mayor Pingree attempts to do. But, but I, I call this the first regime of environmental inequality under sort of basically unregulated industrial capitalism. And that persists more or less until the Great Depression, despite some of the reform efforts of the progressive era. Right. And you mentioned progressive era. We always use the progressive era to mention that there's so many reforms going on, not only for children and women and workers yeah. and stuff like that. It really isn't. It was not very progressive, as we're finding out through history. You know, and yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, like Mayor Pingree uh, did launch this campaign to try to make water free for all residents. And basically it was defeated but in the Michigan state legislature and by the Michigan Supreme court. 
um, and it had to do with sort of ch city charter amendment rules and so forth. Um, but you know, like I said, the 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 uh, the smoke ordinances were too weakly enforced to much affect air pollution. Uh, it wasn't really until the until the New Deal that the city could afford to construct a real sewage treatment plant. And so part of the problem in the progressive era is the city can't afford to construct the kind of facilities that would really uh, uh, treat the sewage, although chlorination does help. But in general, a lot of the progressive reforms, they make a little bit of a difference, but they're kind of, they're, they don't go far enough. And yeah, the New Deal era sees much more substantial reforms. And I spend the middle third of the book discussing those. Um, but yeah, the progressive era, there's some reform, but it's not enough to, to make a huge difference. Right, right, and and when you get into um, the Great Depression, you 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 bring us into up to the Great Depression by talking about Fordism, right. and Fordism yeah. is everywhere in the industrial North. Why don't you just expand on what is Fordism? Then you yeah. know, tell us like how this brought us into the Great Depression, where you can afford to do things, you know? Right. Yeah. So uh, you know, the term Fordism is coined originally by Frederick Winslow Taylor, who is associated with so-called scientific management and things like time motion studies. And, you know, this is basically an attempt to rationalize uh, manufacturing and industrial work uh, by timing uh, everything that workers do and trying to speed up production and eliminate any in inefficiencies. Um, and ironically, Taylor actually, he coins the term Fordism in part to criticize Ford because he observes the sort of conditions that you have at Ford's Highland Park plant and other facilities and thinks that this is taking the pride out of work. It's making uh, work more boring and monotonous, which it is, but it's also dramatically increasing productivity. Um, because of course, as, as you all know, in addition to introducing the moving assembly line and mechanization into auto manufacturing, Ford is breaking all these tasks, which often had been done by more skilled art artisanal workers uh, into repetitive tasks that require little training um, and so there are workers in the Highland Park plant who only have had two or three days of training and they're already working on the assembly line. And that's because of the way the production process has been simplified under Fordism. Later, uh, the Italian Marxist theorist Antonio Gramsci uh, writes this influential essay in his prison notebooks called Americanism and Fordism. And he, he uses Fordism to describe the whole way that capitalism is changing. And um, he, you know, he theorizes Fordism as this sort of progressive attempt by industry to overcome falling rates of profit by responding to the demand problem and by paying workers higher wages that can do things like buy cars, right? And he's thinking about how these things are being exported to places like Turin and Northern Italy and this kind of new rationalized American mode of production, which includes increasing rates of consumption is what he means by Fordism. So that story has been told many times by many scholars. What I do in my book is I show the environmental consequences of these new systems of production in Detroit, right? So um, there are new environmental risks created by the rise of the auto industry. I mean, Detroit just grows massively uh, in the first two decades of the 20th century. It rockets up to the fourth largest city in America, whereas it had, I don't think it had even been in the top 10 list at the turn of the 20th century. Um, and you know the the city, uh, you know, is this huge center, of course, of auto manufacturing and mechanization and moving assembly lines create new risks for workers. So, for example, um, new kinds of spray guns put more mist in the air in paint shops. Um, new kinds of drills uh, and and chipping machines and foundries fill the air with more silica dust. And so, all these things create more risk for occupational disease and catastrophic explosions and accidents. 
And this is compounded by the fact that the progressive era state is very weak in the regulation department and the state of Michigan is weak in the regulation department. And uh, you have increasingly rigid racial segregation during the first great migration where before World War I, a lot of the worst jobs were held by Southern and Eastern European immigrants. But as African-Americans pour into the city in the 19-teens and 20s and European immigration slows down, they're given the worst jobs in the foundries and in the paint shops and the auto industry if they're not completely excluded. And so you see, for example, in 1927, there's this catastrophic fire at the Briggs Manufacturing Company um, on Harper Avenue in Detroit. And 21 workers at least burned to death, probably more. 17 of them were African-American men, and they had all been segregated to the paint shop near these explosive uh, uh, tanks of a nitrocellulose compound. Uh, so that's a case where you see the racial segregation was directly responsible for most of the victims being black. And more broadly, the foundry workers become increasingly African-American um, at, at Ford's facilities. I think black men are something like nine times as likely as white men to be sent to the foundries uh, by the Ford Motor Company. And a lot of the other auto companies like Chrysler barely hire black workers at all until World War II. So Ford is relatively progressive, but it's also discriminatory. Um, so. Those are some of the risks of Fordism. And then in, in, with regard to the Great Depression, basically the auto industry takes off like gangbusters. The city annexes like 100 miles of territory, expands into the suburbs. It takes out all this debt to build new infrastructure like roads and water and sewer lines. And the assumption is the tax base is just going to keep growing. But then what happens with the stock market crash in 29, as auto sales fall 75%. So the automakers have to lay off like roughly half their workforce in Detroit. So the unemployment rate skyrockets and the city all of a sudden is in this huge debt crisis. It can't pay off its debts to the Wall Street banks um, and, and the city is on the verge of bankruptcy and ultimately it will be saved from bankruptcy by the New Deal. And the, the Roosevelt administration comes in with the Banking Act of 1933 and it helps Detroit renegotiate its debt with the Wall Street banks uh, and convert shorter term debt to longer term debt. And it also, creates 100,000 public works jobs, rebuilding the city's infrastructure. It builds in a sewage treatment plant, which opens in 1940. Uh, but in response to a wave of labor organizing across the country in all sorts of industries, right? From uh, the docks of San Francisco to the steel mills of Pennsylvania to the textile mills of the Carolinas, including the auto plants of Michigan and Ohio and other states, industrial worker militancy is one of the factors that leads the uh, leads to the passage of the Wagner Act in 1935, uh, the, or the National Labor Relations Act, which gives workers the right to strike. Um, and then you have this series of hard fought labor battles that lead to the unionization of the big three automakers, the rise of the United Auto Workers, et cetera. Um, so I spend the middle sort of third of the book or so, a little more than a third, basically chapters three through six, looking at, the pros and the cons of the New Deal from the perspective of environmental inequality. And my argument is that the New Deal um, does improve conditions. It improves public health in Detroit. Uh, it does reduce poverty. It does save the city from bankruptcy. African-Americans do benefit from the New Deal, but they benefit substantially less than whites because of racism in the housing market, because of redlining, as well as ongoing racism in, in uh, private industry, they're still segregated in the worst jobs and they still have a much harder time getting things like FHA loans or moving to the suburbs really until the civil rights 
reforms and legislation like the Fair Housing Act of 1968, and it persists even afterward. So the consequence of that is that although conditions improve, um, African Americans, because of segregation, are, are still subject to higher rates of occupational disease into the 50s and 60s because they're in the worst jobs. And because they're still concentrated in inner city housing, they're more exposed to lead poisoning. And then finally, you know, the New Deal does create the first banking regulations and it does enable unionization in certain ways, but it doesn't contain any real environmental regulations. That doesn't come until the Nixon era, right, with the creation mm -hmm. of the EPA and OSHA and all of that. Uh, and so you do have ever increasing air pollution and the Detroit River is still getting more and more polluted into the post-war era because you it's not until the Clean Water Act that you know municipalities have to do things like create secondary sewage treatment plants, which mean that you can't just dump untreated sewage. So, so the drinking water got safe by the 1930s and 40s, but you could still dump all the wastewater directly into the river, and you don't have to treat any of that until the Nixon era. Um, so it's contradictory, and I, I examine those contradictions at length in the book. Yeah, no, yeah, it was a constant going back and forth when I was reading it. It's like, pull it, it's moving forward here, but stepping back over there. Right. But right. then post-World War II, you had this guy, uh, Gerald Remus, yep. and he seemed to help shape some sort of water system in Detroit. Um, here's an individual trying to do something, right? Yeah, Gerald Remus is a fascinating figure. So he works for the city of Detroit for about 40 years, and he retires in 1973. But from Mayor Cobo through Mayor Gribbs, um, he is the chief engineer and superintendent of the Detroit Department of Water Supply, as it was then called. Now, of course, it's the Detroit Water and Sewers Department. And under Remus, um, the Detroit water system massively expands out into the suburbs. Um, so, you know, it's like 29 square miles in 1905. By 1961, it's 387 square miles of coverage, which means that Detroit is providing water to the whole region. And it will eventually bring Pontiac in, and of course, Flint into the system. And Remus is kind of an empire builder. And in fact, he actually fantasizes about going all the way out to Lansing and providing them with water. Um, but the reason why Remus wants to expand the system is he's worried the suburbs are going to develop their own rival water systems, which will deprive DWSD, or as it was then called, uh, you know, DW, DDWS of customers, which is going to be bad for their finances. And it's going to mean they were going to, they would have to charge higher rates, which might drive more businesses out, more residents out. So basically you have regional utility price competition, and this is happening in the context of the rise of suburbia after World War II and the movement of factories out to the suburbs and mostly white residents out to the suburbs, both working class and middle class. And he wants to protect Detroit's tax base and keep the water rates low to retain residents in industry. And this creates an impetus towards expansion. Also, the Greater Detroit Board of Commerce, the sort of local major business lobby, is also pushing to expand the water system because they want Detroit to provide cheap water to all these new factories and suburban subdivisions. Um, now, ultimately, this will create certain political conflicts because it means that uh, you, you have an increasingly African-American city surrounded by majority white suburbs, which are more affluent, although they're, they're, you know, some of them are, are much more affluent than others. Um, and, you know, eventually you get political conflicts where suburban political leaders will start accusing Detroit of charging higher water rates, and you have a series of lawsuits in the 70s and so on. Uh, but, but Remus doesn't 
predict the degree of population decline that will happen. And he just thinks that, you know, Detroit is going to keep growing, the suburbs are going to grow, and it's going to be a win-win where the city can provide water to the whole region. <laughs> he was an interesting character, wasn't he? Yeah. Um, another person, right, all right, let's jump into a point of the 60s. We were talking previously about the UAW being an environmental yeah. type of union. Yeah. And we've talked about this on our podcast in the past. But here, you, you not only do you talk about it, but you bring in more of the community, you know, yeah. the workers' voice, not just the leaders of the UAW and their but you bring in a workers' voice on what's going on with them and what they're demanding, especially with this woman, Barbara um, Fedork. Fedorks? Fedorko. Yeah. Fedorko. Okay. Yeah. Um, who was she? And what was she talking about um, and saying about Chrysler at this time? This is roughly around, what, the early 70s, right? Yeah, it, it, it's a conflict that persists from the mid-60s until the early 70s. So basically, uh, I mentioned before how you have deindustrialization after World War II and more factories are leaving. So uh, there's an attempt to reverse this and to try to bring industry back into the city. So under Mayor Jerome Cavanaugh. For example, uh, the city of Detroit gets Chrysler certain tax breaks to construct a new industrial facility called the Huber Foundry, uh, which opens in 1966 in a neighborhood called Harper Van Dyke. And the residents are, a lot of them are, are, are uh, Central and Eastern European immigrants, uh, really second generation increasingly by that time, second and third generation. But this is part of a kind of corridor of Chrysler facilities that goes from Dodge, Maine to other facilities like the Winfield Foundry. You know, Chrysler is the largest employer of auto workers in the city of Detroit at that time, right? Um, and this is a very important facility. It's the major uh, producer of crankshafts and other important parts for Chrysler vehicles in North America. And initially, there's a concern like, well, there might be problems with air pollution if we construct this foundry in the middle of a residential neighborhood. But among other things, it points to the fact that by the 1960s, uh, you have a high a rising rate of homeownership, and you have a lot of these homeowners, many of whom have recently clawed their way into the middle class, and they're concerned about property values, and they're worried that industrial pollution is going to lower their property values. Um, and you also have new environmental laws like the Michigan Air Pollution Act of 1965, which uh, make it easier to sue companies for air pollution. So long story short, um, there are initial promises that there will be this like effective dust collection system at the foundry. It breaks down because of cost overruns and technological problems. And so a whole raft of lawsuits are launched against the facility um, by surrounding residents. And, and Barbara Fedorko uh, is characteristic of these people. She she lived near the site since 1934, and she becomes uh, a leader in the local protests against the foundry pollution. I mean, there are actually pictures from the second Earth Day. I don't include this in my book. There are pictures from the second Earth Day in 1971 where these angry residents are holding up signs accusing Chrysler of genocide, which was rather melodramatic, right? But but they were angry about pollution from the foundry. And it was a serious problem. Their homes were constantly being blanketed with metal dust. Some of their kids were getting nosebleeds and eye infections. Um, and they're constantly coughing. I mean, you probably wouldn't want to live next to a foundry either. I certainly don't. Um, now, what's fascinating is there's this interview uh, that is conducted in 1971 by uh, a leftist organization called the Motor City Labor League. Um, and they they interviewed two people um, in this issue, and I, and I include a picture of it in my book. One is Barbara Fedorko, 
um, who represents the Harper Van Dyke Property Owners Association Pollution Committee. And they've been sort of picketing the plant with protests. Um, they they uh, create bumper stickers that say things like, Chrysler pollutes our homes, don't buy Chrysler. But then they also interviewed a guy named Jordan Sims, who is an African-American worker um, at Eldon Gear and Axel, which is one of the plants next door. Um, and, and he uh, uh, was uh, an activist in, in, in the labor movement at the time. And what's fascinating is they both say like the pollution is really bad. And Jordan Sims says, if anything, the workers inside the plant have a worse time with pollution than the people in the neighborhood do because they're trapped in these indoor spaces. Mm -hmm. And and it was both black and white workers, Arab American workers and others who were being exposed. But of course, in the Huber foundry, like in so many of these facilities, the worst jobs in the melting and the cleaning rooms were mostly held by African-Americans. It was 80 to 90% black. So the people inside the foundry who were being most exposed are mostly black men, right? But then you have these largely uh, second and third generation European uh, American white ethnics living in the neighborhood who aren't necessarily talking to the workers who are also angry about the pollution. So putting the perspective side by side, they're sort of asking, is it possible to bring them together? And actually, Fedorko claims in the interview that she talked to some of the workers. And, and I, I'll, I'll just quote this from my book. She claimed that some of the foundry workers actually wanted bumper stickers saying, don't buy Chrysler <laughs> to put on their cars, <laughs> believe it or not. And and she she claimed they said, you know, you're suffering outside and we're suffering inside. Now, I, I can't uh, prove that that's true, but there's no question that workers in this period were also increasingly angry about pollution because they knew that it was making them sick. They needed right. the jobs, they needed the paychecks, but they also didn't want to die in their 50s because of cancer and heart disease and, uh, and silicosis. And right. Like Right. And that, that was the constant conflict right. that the UAW was doing with their like reports and talking yeah. to their members. Right. Um, right. We need to preserve them as well as the lakes and everything like right. that. Right. But I wanted to, I, there's another question I have, and this is always, since yeah. I was, I, I, I remember these slogans in the seventies, I'm getting to the lead poisoning because yeah. in the seventies, yeah. we said lead poisoning is bad. We're getting rid of lead gas, gasoline, the lead paint. You are constantly bringing up in your book lead poisoning, not only from the very beginning, pretty much, of your book, but to the very end. I thought we got rid of lead poisoning. You know, I thought with this whole campaign in the 70s is going to be gone. But here you keep talking about what are the issues surrounding lead poisoning? Why do we still see it today? Right. So going going back to the 19th century and long before, there's this long history of industrial production using lead, smelting lead using lead and pottery. Um, And lead was very widely used. It was ubiquitous, more or less, in the paint used in residential homes, um, really until the 1960s and 1970s, when you have a growing scientific consensus that lead causes brain damage um, and and other problems like increasing the risks of hearing loss and the like. And so in, in 1971, the Lead-Based Paint Poisoning Prevention Act is passed by Congress. Um, and it provides federal funding for municipal lead screening in Detroit. Uh, the Detroit Health Department does lead screening and finds that about 10% of kids in Detroit have high levels of lead in their blood. Um, and then, of course, as you probably also know, beginning in the 1920s, um, companies like Ethyl start manufacturing um, tetraethyl lead, which is added to gasoline. Um, and the idea is it's supposed to take the engine knock, which had been an annoyance of motorists in the early 20th century, out. But 
people like Alice Hamilton, who is a leading toxicologist, had warned as early as the 1920s that if you put lead in gasoline, it's going to get, people are going to breathe it in from the auto exhaust. It's going to get into their bloodstreams. It's going to cause health problems, which is exactly what happened, right? So you have half a century of ever rising levels of lead dust in the atmosphere from all the gasoline combust combustion with, with petroethyl lead. Finally, the EPA bans it and it is gradually phased out of gasoline, which is why today it says unleaded when you go to the gas station, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, okay. So that leaves a lot of lead dust in the environment and it leaves a lot of lead paint in the homes and apartment buildings and, and businesses around the city as it does everywhere else. Um, and there is a drive to try to force property owners to pay to abate the lead, but there's actually a big business lobbying campaign in the early 70s uh, where basically representatives of local real estate lo lobbying organizations and real estate brokers um, really fight and they, they pressure Mayor Roman Gribbs not to pass an ordinance that would require uh, property developers and, and landlords to abate the lead. Instead, they want to restrict it only to funding for screening and treatment of kids who have lead poisoning. Mm -hmm. So essentially, the, Detroit's uh, uh, lead poisoning prevention program, it ignores the causes of the problem. Uh, which is really the the prevalence of lead in the environment and efforts to abate it. And it focuses on the symptoms, which is people getting poisoned, which is a highly ineffectual and weak response to that. Um, and unfortunately, um, you know, for a combination of political and economic reasons, um, the Detroit has a fairly ineffective lead screening program. Now, I do want to say there are some improvements um, in by the 1990s, and child lead poisoning does begin to go down substantially. It's something like 17% of Detroit kids are estimated to have had lead poisoning in the early 90s, and it had fallen um, down to something like 6% by the early 2000s. But then it increases again in the 2010s. And in my book, I I argue that you know there's a combination of reasons for that. One, you have uh, the elimination of Detroit's lead abatement program in 2012 in the context of the fiscal crisis of the time, the aftermath of the 2008 uh, uh, subprime meltdown and the, the fiscal crisis that leads to Detroit's bankruptcy and the imposition of emergency management. So the city's broke in 2012. Um, and, you know, the I argue that you know the Wall Street banks are partly responsible for that. The state of Michigan is partly responsible for that. Certainly, the Kilpatrick administration and its corruption was partly responsible for that. There's a lot of factors that go into this, um, uh, and 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 things like uh, cuts in in, in 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 federal funding. But the city eliminates its lead abatement program in 2012, and then uh, you have over 100,000 tax foreclosures in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis, uh, and uh, as scholars like Bernadette Atuane have documented, this is partly because the the because Wayne County refuses to adjust uh, property tax assessments uh, in response to the decline in property values after 2008, which means that homeowners are still are really being overassessed for taxes far out of proportion to the value of their homes, which contributes to this wave of tax foreclosures. Uh, really in violation of the Michigan State Constitution, Attaway, I think, is compellingly argued. So the, the consequence of this mass home foreclosure is you have all, an increase in the number of vacant properties across the city, right? And then there's a, there's a home demolition program, which is really mismanaged. And actually, uh, Abdul El-Sayed, when he was running for Michigan governor, really was critical of the way the Duggan administration handled 
the home demolition program, because there's a lot of evidence that uh, home demolitions were performed in such a way as to generate a lot of lead dust and, and families living near demolished homes and the resulting um, debris and, and lead dust had a much higher rate of child lead poisoning or risk of child lead poisoning. Um, so there are many different factors here. And then of course, uh, you have water contamination problems. Detroit does not experience the kind of wholesale contamination of its water supply that Flint does. Um, but um, there are tests performed in the Detroit public schools, for example, showing um, that uh, a, a distressingly high proportion of the Detroit public schools had lead contaminated water in the same time period. And I argue in my book that that was associated with uh, the subcontracting out of maintenance work to firms like Sodexo, which really mm -hmm. cut costs and laid off hundreds of unionized maintenance workers from the Detroit public schools and did a shoddy and poor job of maintaining the buildings. So subprime foreclosures, um, uh, uh, privatization and subcontracting, um, and fiscal austerity um, exacerbated by federal and state uh, government policies all contribute to this sort of reversal of progress in child lead poisoning. I know that's a long and perhaps overly convoluted answer. But it is an important answer because we, we, we don't really we don't really hear about it. We heard about it in the 70s, we heard about it in the 80s, yeah. but we don't hear about it constantly yeah. going on now. It's capitalism yeah. run amok, you could say, or people turning a blind eye. But I want to, the last question, well, the last question, we have two more questions. Last question before on about your book is really focused on Detroit. All we talk about is, yes, Detroit, but you could put that in Cleveland. You could put that in Chicago, all sorts of other industrial cities. But Detroit had an incinerator in the middle of the city. Yes, I remember moving to Detroit and I was about you know uh, half a mile from it. And every morning waking up to the smell, the dust, the debris right. on my windowsill right. and, right. and the smelling that in. It's a story about Detroit how it came that Coleman Young, Mayor Coleman Young, who everybody believes was like, did all he could for the city of Detroit. You you exposed more of what he really wanted and pushed for this incinerator. And the story is, I want you to leave with the story too, is like how the community came together and closed it down. Yeah. Yeah. And and it took a, it was a very long fight, right? Yeah, it doesn't slow down until 2019. Um, and it, it started burning in 1989. So it's a, it takes a very long time to get this thing shut down. But I this is part of a much broader pattern where you see incinerators being constructed uh, disproportionately in communities of color in the 70s and 80s. And the irony is that a lot of the people pushing for it are the first African-American mayors elected in those cities. So Tom Bradley in Los Angeles, David Dinkins in New York, Wilson Good in Philadelphia, and other Black mayors, including Coleman Young, support incinerator projects. And one of the arguments that I make in the book is that a concept like environmental racism is useful in that it points to the fact that you have disproportionately communities of color living near facilities like this. That's true in Detroit as well. But it's overly simplistic to simply say officials built it because they were racist and they wanted to target communities of color, because I don't think that's what Coleman Young was doing in supporting no. the senator at all. In fact, I think he thought that he was helping African-Americans in the city. But the reason that these black mayors and some white mayors embrace incinerators is because by the 1970s, you have this fiscal crisis caused by the combination of deindustrialization and white flight to the suburbs. And then when the Reagan administration comes in, they massively cut federal aid to cities. 
So cities are really scrambling to try to rebuild their tax base. And that means often chasing undesirable industries that affluent areas don't want, right? So part of this is about the mayors um, offering sweetheart deals to outside investors to construct undesirable facilities out of sheer fiscal desperation, right? Also in the 70s, uh, it's getting more expensive to dispose of garbage because landfill uh, costs are increasing. Uh, you know, oil prices spike in the 70s, which means it's more expensive to pay to run all those garbage trucks. And also just because of population growth and other factors, the landfills are filling up. So you often have to drive further out. You have a unionized uh, sanitation workforce. I think the average garbage worker in Detroit in the mid seventies was like 55 years old. A lot of them are close to retirement. So the city wants to cut costs. So, you know, Coleman Young shifts to like from two man garbage trucks to one man garbage trucks, for example. And you have increasing problems with garbage collection, not because of a desire to make the city dirty, but because the city's broke. Um, so the incinerators built in that context. And then there's also a story about corporate lobbying here where nuclear power firms are facing a lot of backlash for their nuclear power plants. So they start shifting into building incinerators because uh, waste to energy technology uses some of the same uh, techniques that are used in nuclear power. Uh, uh, so firms like Westinghouse that specialize in boiler technology um, they formed this organization called the National Research Recovery Association where they're lobbying municipal governments to build incinerators. So all that comes together and it results in the incinerator being constructed. Detroit ends up taking out all this debt to Wall Street banks. It sells $486 million in municipal bonds to big Wall Street banks uh, like Merrill Lynch and others. And selling bonds is another way of saying taking out debt from the banks, right? Mm -hmm. so, the city, so the city goes into all this debt to build what at that time is the world's biggest incinerator. There's a major protest movement that tries to shut it down called the Evergreen Alliance. And I tell the story of the Evergreen Alliance in the book, and they fight really hard. They do civil disobedience. There's constant teachings and protests, and they're not able to do so. And I argue that part of it is because they struggle to build a multiracial coalition and a multi-class coalition. And that was related both to the fact that Detroit is very racially polarized increasingly between a majority Black city and majority white suburbs. Um, and you have a black mayor who's supporting the incinerator and the Evergreen Alliance was mostly white. A lot of them were artists and activists from the Cass Corridor. There are a few African-Americans who participate, but they have a difficult time constructing a multiracial movement. And then also the labor unions are very divided over this. And that has to do also with deindustrialization and the impact of Reagan's policies and the way the UAW starts to back away from coalitions in the context of massive losses in membership and uh, this increasingly conservative atmosphere in Washington, D.C. Long story short, um, the city ends up selling the incinerator after huge budget overruns to Philip Morris and General Electric in 1991. And Philip Morris and General Electric buy it because there's a loophole in one of Ronald Reagan's tax cuts in 1986, which provides tax breaks to corporate entities that own municipal incinerators. So the irony of all of this is that the world's biggest cigarette company ends up getting $200 million in tax breaks for buying this dirty facility in a largely low-income African-American neighborhood. Uh, and, and they own it until, I think, 2008. And then there's another firm, Detroit Renewable Power, that takes over for a while. But it continues to constantly violate uh, air quality laws. There's something like 750 violations of uh, the, the Clean Air Act in the 2000s by the incinerator. And then finally gets shut down in 2019. Finally, it was shut down. Yes. Um, I Yeah. The, the story you told about the incinerator, I never knew. 
and all these tax breaks. And you can always go back and say, blame everything on Reagan. It just goes back to that. You know, it's, it's so easy. But you had these communities, you had these activists, you had these grassroots organizations constantly fighting, constantly exposing. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the good thing. I mean, we, you still have the communities mm -hmm. arguing and trying to protect the city yeah. itself. Absolutely. Yeah. And I just want to note, too, that there's subsequent generations of activists. I want to highlight people like Amin and Maxi and Zero Waste Detroit, um, who were heavily involved in organizing against the incinerator for years and years and years. Um, uh, so, so, yeah, there are multiple generations of activists involved in the incinerator struggle in Detroit. Right, right. Um, it's not like it's all doom and gloom here in Detroit. I mean, we have great organizations. Yeah, um, they're constantly doing that, and they're still around, and they're still fighting. Yeah. Um, but we have to end our interview anyway. And the way we end our interview is we ask our researchers what collections really helped you with um, doing producing your book. And I, I said at the beginning of the show, you basically lived here. <laughs> so, um, and you pretty yeah. much hit every collection possible. So why don't you give us a highlight of some of the really good ones that really helped? Yeah. Uh, oh, like. there, there are really just so many. Um, so, I mean, at the center of it are the labor unions, of course, being the Ruther. So uh, in the case of the auto industry, that begins with the auto workers union, the AWU, and a lot of their shop papers from the 1920s can be found in collections like the Joe Brown collection. And then, of course, you know, the United Auto Workers, particularly in my story from the 30s through the 70s, although they, of course, remain active afterwards and, and up to the present. But in the 30s through the 70s, I, I connect their health and safety struggles and their involvement in environmentalism. And you can find so much of that in the United Workers Health and Safety Department records, especially the Conservation and Recreation Department records, the Olga Maydar papers, and then the various presidential papers of Ruther and then subsequent UAW presidents like Doug Frazier, Leonard Woodcock, um, and but also, you know, the Foundry and Forge Department, all these different departments in the UAW representing various types of workers have relevant material that I draw on. And then like uh, for the incinerator conflict, um, Tom Stevens was one of the activists in the Evergreen Alliance. His papers are at the Ruther. There's a lot of great material in there. Um, and really, uh, and, and we could really go on and on. Um, and I, I found so many wonderful primary sources I, can I just cite one example? Sure. Um, so I found a letter uh, in, uh, this is included in the UAW Health and Safety uh, Department records at the Ruther. And it's a, a letter by a, a worker at Ford's Dearborn Iron Foundry. Um, and it was written in August, 1967. And the worker's name is Robert J. Del Proposto. And this guy writes a letter complaining about air pollution where he works. And what's fascinating about the letter is he doesn't just write it to say to company management. He wrote the letter to Henry Ford II, the CEO of Ford. He wrote it to Walter Ruther. He wrote the letter to Governor George Romney. He wrote the letter to Senator Phil Hart, to Senator Robert Griffin. He wrote it to John Dingell. Uh, he wrote it to Congressman Marsha Griffiths. He sent copies also to Channel 2 News, the editor of the Detroit News, and the editor of the Detroit Free Press. So this guy sends letters to all of these big wigs and power players. And in his letter, he says, there's much talk today about the polluting of our air and water and much controversy regarding the extent of the pollution and the degree of harm and damage to humans and other life forms. Uh, but he, he says, the environment I work in is far from clean. Um, and, and he says, you know, if we're so concerned about air pollution, then, then why aren't we cleaning up the air that I breathe at the Dearborn Iron Foundry? And this is such a good example because we, we imagine environmentalism is just this middle-class thing. 
But these industrial workers are saying, wait a second, we're so tired of breathing in the pollution. And the fact that he sent that letter to the governor, to the CEO for it, to the head of the union, to the editors of the two local newspapers says a lot about how workers' consciousness was changing in 1967. And this is the kind of fascinating primary source you can find in the roof there. And there's so much more like it. I mean, it's really a, a, an absolute gold mine of these kinds of materials. Excellent. Thank you. Hey, this was a great interview. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed your book. I encourage everybody to buy your book. Um, it is an important, important aspect for environmental justice and the history of. So thanks for being with us. Thanks so much, Dan. Appreciate it. Tales from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library and Archives of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. The producers are Dan Galadner and Troy Eller-English. The music was composed by Bart Bilmer. And of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. For more information, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan. Goodbye, Dan. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, and no, I'll start that sentence over too. Not at all. Because I have to give a shout out to my cousin. Erk. Very good. Daniel, how could you forget? Oh, that's not nice. He's not a Daryl. Oh, he's not a Daryl. In my life? I don't think I have any Daryls. Brother Daryl, my other brother. (laughs) Best show ever.